0: All right, well, thank you all for coming out tonight. Uh, It's a great blessing to see you all here. Again, my name is Chris. Uh, I'm the managing editor at the Lancaster Patriot, and uh, it's a privilege to be able to speak to you tonight about this topic. So the question that I would like to attempt to answer is, what is a Christian state, and should we want one? And I will seek to answer both of those questions in the brief time I have. It's brief time, so uh, this is a big topic. I'll do my best to, to lay out a foundation here. The first thing that we need to understand in order to understand what a Christian state is, is to understand the Christian worldview. We need to know what is the Christian worldview if we're even going to talk about the idea of, of government or the state. And there has been nothing else in human history that has brought about more good than the proper application of the Christian worldview. In fact, the very concept of goodness itself only exists because God is the standard of goodness. Remove the Christian worldview with its transcendent standard of right and wrong. And there is no logical reason why people should not lie or steal or rape or murder. Abandon God's law. And there is no ultimate standard when it comes to justice and righteousness and equity. And so if we are to understand the Christian worldview at all, the first thing we must understand is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. A Christian state in any sense of the word is an impossibility without the Gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the Gospel that will be victorious in changing this world and establishing just and righteous societies. A Christian state will not be formed by a small group of people or a large group of people using violence to force others to believe as if that were even possible. No, there is something far more powerful that will bring about change in society. First in the hearts of rebel sinners, and then in the world at large. And that is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the Gospel teaches us that we are all made in God's image. Every single one of us. And as such, God's law is written on our hearts. We know it's wrong to lie, to steal, to murder, to commit adultery, to dishonor our parents, to covet, We know it's wrong to dishonor our Creator and use His name in vain. You see, the problem isn't that we don't know right from wrong. The problem is that we do know it, and we do the wrong anyway. Here's the picture of the human heart. It's full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. We are haters of God, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless and not only that but we know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die and yet not only do we commit such sins but we give approval to others who do them as well folks we are all guilty criminals before the bar of God's justice I am as well that is the state of sinful humanity you see the Christian worldview does not teach that man is inherently good and we simply need education to achieve success and perfection. The reality is that we're sinful to our core. But the good news, and it's good news, is that God has acted on behalf of sinners. The eternal Son of God became man. The Lord Jesus Christ, He dwelt among us. He laid down His life as a ransom for sinners. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died to save the murderer. He died to save the thief. He died to save the homosexual. He died to save the fornicator. He died to save sinners. Then he rose from the dead and he defeated death. And with that, the entire course of human history was altered and countless souls were saved. Then Jesus ascended and he is reigning now as king. He is your King and He is my King. And there is not one square inch of this earth that does not belong to Him. And you will one day stand before Him, and it will either be in judgment for your sin or in joy for your salvation. There is no third option. So the call is this. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Bow the knee to Him. He offers you even this day forgiveness for all your sins that you've committed against Him. You need not be enslaved to your sin. There is freedom and hope in Christ. But if you will not repent and believe, if you spurn the Gospel offer, know with certainty that you will face the wrath of a holy God and a good God and a just God on judgment day. People may mock at that now, but I assure you they will not on that day. And it is this message, this good news, that is the power of God unto salvation. It has changed many a wicked heart. It's changed my heart. It's transformed haters of God into lovers of righteousness. And it can save you tonight if you don't know the Lord. It has led men and women to seek to establish justice on this earth in accord with God's Word. Indeed, the greatest blessings that have been enjoyed in Western civilization, the rise of hospitals and orphanages, the advance of literacy and education, the abolishment of the slave trade, the formation of just civil governments can all be traced back to that empty tomb. Because Christ is risen, the Gospel has changed the world. And until hearts and minds are changed by the preaching of this Gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit, our society will continue to fall farther and farther into darkness. Unless a people are set free from sin, they will not embrace the Christian worldview because they do not embrace Christ. If you do not love Christ and His law, you will not love a society that wants to honor Him and His law. It's as simple as that. But you ought to. To the question of if everyone should believe in Christ, the answer is an emphatic yes. God commands all men everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. Now given that all people are required to obey Christ because He is the ruler of the kings of the earth, it follows then that everyone is required to obey Him, including civil rulers. Including civil rulers. Which leads us to our question tonight. Should we want a Christian state? Now by this, do we simply mean a state where everyone is Christian? That is not what I mean by the phrase, but we certainly should want that. We should want everyone to know the Lord, to be freed from the bondage of sin, and to experience forgiveness in Christ. But when I use the phrase, a Christian state, I am referring to a state wherein the government of that state is based on the biblical worldview. A genuine Christian state is one wherein Christ is acknowledged as Lord, and the government functions in accord with God's law word. That is what I mean by a Christian state. What I do not mean is a situation wherein the church rules the state. That's known as papalism. Nor do I mean a situation where the state controls the church. That's Erastianism. I mean a situation wherein the government does what God has authorized it to do. Punish evildoers as defined by God's word. Now, our culture has come to view government as only civil government when we use the word government. But the correct understanding of government begins with self-government, family government, church government, and then civil government. If we all governed ourselves, if everyone in this society, in this state, in this nation, and the world governed themselves according to God's law, we would have no need of civil government. You see, the civil government cannot and should not attempt to force people to believe in Christianity. That is not its function. The civil government cannot do that. It cannot force belief. But the civil government is responsible for punishing evildoers in society. See, Romans 13 teaches us that the civil ruler is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Romans 13, verse 4. Now not all sin is to be punished by the state, but some is. And those distinctions are made within Scripture itself. Now everyone perhaps you know with the exception of anarchists will agree that government has a duty and an obligation to punish evil in society. This is not a new idea that I'm saying. The question is not if government will do this. The question is not if government will punish evil. The question is what standard will the government use to determine what is evil? Will it use God's eternal moral law as their standard or will it be man's changing fancies that determines what is evil in society. If it is humanistic law, then we should not be surprised when the state punishes you for calling a man a man or for refusing to allow your child to go along with sexual sin. Because humanistic law can change in an instant. You see, the Christian worldview provides the only basis for a transcendent law that tells us right from wrong. God's moral law tells us what it means to love God and love neighbor. God's law also tells us how to prosper in the world. His law is a reflection of His goodness in that those who walk in His law are blessed. We know this. Abandon God's law for marriage and your family will crumble. I'm sure many of you have experienced that in your own lives, people you know. Abandon God's law for human sexuality and you will only find emptiness and meaninglessness. Abandon God's law in a society and chaos will ensue. You see, our culture has become woefully and willfully ignorant of the history of our nation and the place that God's law played in it. William Penn is a classic case in point. Now, Penn is heralded as the great proponent of religious freedom. And in many ways, he was, but not in the way that some think. What did Penn believe about the state and Christianity? Because if we understand this, we will better understand why several decades after his death in 1776, when the original Constitution of Pennsylvania was signed, it retained a Christian worldview, at least in large part, that they wanted their magistrates to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. That was their standard, and we'll come back to that. But what did Penn believe that laid the foundation for this belief? Well, let's go to what Penn actually enacted. Let's go to what Penn himself enacted in this state. In the frames of government of 1682, listen to what William Penn recognized. He said, The great and wise God made the world and placed man in it as his deputy to rule it. Penn noted that man then in his lust and sin rebelled against God and plunged the world into sin. He's speaking about the fall. And then Penn says this. He says that because of sin in the world, such as would not live conformable to the holy law within. Remember, God's law is written on our hearts. We know it. right? But we don't self-govern. We don't follow that law. Because man would not live conformable to the holy law within, he should fall under the reproof and correction Of the just law without in a judicial administration. In other words, Penn believed that the law had a significant role to play in society, not just in the private affairs of men. Okay, but what law is Penn speaking about? Maybe he's speaking about humanistic law. What does he mean when he says law? Well, he answers that question in the next line when he quotes from Galatians chapter 3 and 1 Timothy 1, and he says this this is William Penn, quote, This the Apostle teaches in diverse of his epistles. The law, says he, was added because of transgression. In another place, knowing that the law was not made for the righteous man, but for the disobedient and ungodly, for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, and for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, etc. When Penn referred to the law, he meant nothing less than God's law revealed in Scripture. You can disagree with him. You can hate it. But you can't deny it, nor can you ignore its influence on history. Yes, Penn wanted people to be free to worship the one true God as their conscience dictated. That is Christian liberty. But he did not mean by that liberty that people were free to reject Biblical law. That is not Christian liberty. We know this was the case because the actual laws of the commonwealth were based in large part on biblical law. Mere unbelief was not punishable by the state because the Bible never teaches that the state has authority to punish unbelief as such. But the state does have an obligation before God to punish certain offenses against God's moral law in society. It's the state's duty to punish evildoers, namely those who would openly and defiantly practice evil in society. To that end, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania under the leadership of Penn outlawed not only theft, murder, and rape, but also adultery, fornication, sodomy, bestiality, and public blasphemy. On the authority of God's Word and based on a love for neighbor, we ought to affirm that such laws were good, righteous, and beneficial to society. To the degree that we don't, we have revealed that we believe that our standard of righteousness is better than God's. And that's not something that I am willing to do. Now, why did Penn believe that God's law was good for the commonwealth? Why did other states enact similar laws? Why did the Kingdom of Hawaii in their 1840 Constitution write, quote, all laws of the islands shall be in consistency with the general spirit of God's law. That's the Kingdom of Hawaii, friends. Why did these men and so many more believe that God's law was good for society? No doubt there were several reasons. One, they recognized that God, not man, is the only lawgiver and the standard of justice. They recognized that Christ is Lord of all the earth and demands that all men, including civil rulers, obey Him. But I also believe that they understood that God is not mocked. God is not mocked. When His law is abandoned and spurned, that society will not prosper. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The reason these men wanted biblical law, and the reason we should today, is because nothing else but righteousness conformity to God's law will exalt a nation but if a society abandons God's standard of justice shame and reproach are bound to follow pride does not exalt a nation the shedding of innocent blood does not exalt a nation righteousness does now people get bothered about by what are known as the religious oath or affirmation clauses in the original constitution almost every state almost every state had these clauses that they wanted people to recognize that God's Word is the standard, that the Christian worldview is true. In order to understand these clauses, we have to recognize that they are pointing to the highest standard of righteousness in the society. I want you to think about this. Why do we have oaths to uphold and defend the U.S. Constitution and the laws of this land? Because people are trying to say that these are our highest standards. And that if you do not believe that, you should not govern, right? People say, if you're not going to uphold the Constitution, the argument is, well, you shouldn't be governing then. So you should, so people argue you should have a moral belief that this is right, that this is the standard, that this is the law of the land. But the truth is, if we make man's law, no matter how great it may have been in history, if we make that the highest standard, we will be left with confusion and chaos and no grounds to object to unjust laws. You see, our culture wants to recognize the state as the highest standard of authority. If, we've, if you've doubted that before, I think we've seen that in the past two years, that whatever the state says, that should go. So we can make an oath to the Constitution and the laws of the land as supreme, ostensibly, right? People don't have a problem with that. I've had no comments saying, hey, we shouldn't have people make an oath to the Constitution. So we can make that oath, but we can't make an oath to the higher standard of God's law. Now my challenge is for all those who would reject God's law as the highest standard, by what basis then can someone who took an oath to submit to the laws of this land reject any unjust law? If your highest standard is the constitution and the laws of this land, what do you do when those laws go against God's law? You see, the oath oath or affirmation that God's word is supreme, look at the 1776 Constitution, to acknowledge that the Old and New Testament were given by divine inspiration. That that is the standard. That is the standard of righteousness. It's affirming that God's Word is supreme. And our highest allegiance then needs to be to His law. And if any law, any man-made mandate goes against that law, we must disobey it. Let me give you an example. If you are in favor right, of an oath to the Constitution and the laws of the land as the supreme standard, Which I am not, the supreme standard must be to Christ. But if you want to say, well, you can't have a a religious clause in there, you have to just, the, the supreme standard is the Constitution and the laws of the land, not God's law. You're going to have a problem. What are you going to do when the Constitution or the federal government violates justice? The Fugitive Slave Act was the federal law of the land in 1850. If your highest allegiance is to the law of the land, then you must return that runaway slave to his master. Now, Wisconsin nullified that law. They said, we reject this law. And biblical law, by the way, forbids the return of a runaway slave to his master. See, the Supreme Court ruled against Wisconsin. They said, hey, you have to obey this federal mandate. And if your highest allegiance is to the law of this land, then you have no basis to reject any mandate as unjust. The government can do whatever it wants. An affirmation in the Christian faith in a governing document as the original Pennsylvania Constitution had, should be viewed as an affirmation that God's law has the final word in society, not man's law. No matter how many people in robes say that something evil is good, no matter how many perverted laws are enacted, we have an obligation and a duty to obey God rather than man. Do you believe the Dred Scott decision was right? When the Supreme Court ruled, that African-Americans should not have citizenship. Now if your highest allegiance is to the laws or rulings of the land then you have no recourse to reject that. The Christian worldview, however, with its affirmation that God's law is supreme, does give us grounds to reject unjust laws. In fact, it gives us the only grounds to even know what is just and unjust in the first place. And the religious affirmation should be understood in this light. It was a protection to the people because they wanted God's law to be recognized as the highest standard by any legislator or government official. Now if you have no problem with the oaths or affirmations that the Constitution should be the highest authority, then you are also promoting a religious affirmation. For you are saying that all people ought to. That's a moral obligation. If you're saying all people ought to make that oath or affirmation to the Constitution, you're making a religious claim and you're saying that this is the highest standard in the land. Much more could be said on that. You see, the law serves as a restraining influence in society. It cannot save us, but it is a blessing. The Bible says that because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Look around our nation today. The sentence against an evil deed is not only not executed speedily, it is often not executed at all. Abortion is staining our land with the innocent blood of millions. God's law says, you shall do no murder. And yet that law is not enforced in our land, at least not when it comes to babies. And the holocaust of abortion, and yes it is a holocaust, it is a destruction or slaughter on a mass scale. It's destroying our nation. And I believe the widespread immorality and perverseness in our nation is a direct result of God judging us by giving our nation over to sin. All in the name of what? Love? Freedom? Choice? No, this is bondage to sin. For if we will not be ruled by God's law, we will be ruled by sin. God's law against fornication and adultery is no longer enforced in our land. Has that brought blessing? It has not. Sexual sin, unchastity, and marital unfaithfulness have skyrocketed. More kids than ever are growing up without fathers. As we have taught people that there's no consequence to sex. Our culture is awash in pornography. And this is supposed to be better than God's law? I think not. God's law against sodomy is not enforced in our land. When it was, the sexual practices of perverts was far less common and far less public because there were consequences for it. God's law protected society from the damaging influence of open immorality and perversion. And it protected those who would be given over to that sin. It is not loving to remove those laws. It is not loving to the people who are tempted to sin in that way. And it's not loving for those who would then be exposed to that, especially children. It's not loving because it has led society to a place where children now are confronted with sexual sin nearly everywhere they turn. If we love people, we we will call for God's law because we we do not want people to dive headlong into sin. And what we see now, this is supposed to be better than God's law, the open celebration of perversion. It's not. When God's law is rejected, a society will inevitably embrace murder, infanticide, sexual sin, fornication, and adultery. Look around and ask yourself, have those things given us a beautiful society? A society where husbands cheat on their wives, where pornography is the nation's pastime, where children are encouraged to mutilate their bodies and suppress puberty, where womanhood is degraded by men dressing up like prostitutes and dancing for kids. I'm sorry, that's the reality. It is not a beautiful society. And it is not a loving society. If you cannot see that, you have been blinded by your sin and I plead with you to turn to Christ that your eyes may be opened. There is freedom in Christ. There is freedom from sin. But those who are lost in their sin, they will not want a Christian state. I understand that. I know that If you love your sin and you will not abandon it, you you will not want a Christian state. But you should. You should want one. You should want it because if our nation had retained biblical law, the restraining power of the law would have kept many from diving headlong into sin and perversion to the destruction of their souls. It may even have restrained you. Just enough, perhaps, so that you would not have hardened your heart to the point where now You're unwilling to even hear the Gospel and leave your sins. Yes, even those who are opposed to God's law should want a Christian state for the good of their neighbor and the benefit of their own soul. You should want it. You should. I'm not saying you do, but I'm saying you should. We do not want a Christian state because we hate those who reject Christ. No, we want a Christian state because we love them and know that any society that abandons Christ's law will be given over to immorality, pain, suffering, tyranny, and death. We do not want a Christian state because we want all non-Christians to be removed from the land. We want a Christian state because we want all people, Christians and non-Christians, to live under God's good, just, and holy law. For there shall be one law, one standard of righteousness, God's moral law applied in society as the Bible directs. The wages of sin is death. That is true in the eternal sense. For the sinner, if he does not turn from his sin, if she does not turn from her sin, it will end up in hell. The wages of sin is death. But it is also true for societies. A society that embraces sin, God will bring about the death and destruction of that society. The wages of sin is death. Study the history of nations that have been given over to immorality, to infanticide, to sodomy. It does not end well for those nations. We do not want that for our neighbors, Christians or non-Christians. And we do not want that for our children. The Christian message is that there is a better way. Jesus not only came to save sinners from the bondage of their own lust and greed and the adultery and murder in their hearts. But he also came to establish the kingdom of God on earth. The slow demise of just laws in the Christian worldview occurred as people gradually abandoned the lordship of Christ in their personal lives, in their churches, and in the society at large. But it can be regained and even improved. Indeed, it must be. We can have a Christian state learning from the mistakes our forefathers made when they abandon biblical law. In fact, there should be no doubt that it will happen. Christ will bring forth justice to the nations. He will judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. All the ends of the earth will fear Him. The question is this, will we be faithful to carry out the task here as Christ's kingdom advances on earth? And my appeal to Christians is that we must once again return to the unapologetic proclamation of the Gospel and the full-orbed teaching of the Christian worldview, including what God demands of the civil government. Then and only then will the people at large, influenced by the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the Word, be moved to freely desire a society wherein the laws are just and good and holy. The people will offer themselves freely to Christ on the day of God's power. By the grace of God, the people of this state, of this nation, burdened and wearied by the weight of their own sin and folly, they will long for a righteous society. They will desire a righteous state because they have come to see what sin has given them. Ruin and desolation. And they will want a Christian state. And they will be right to do so. Until then, we must keep proclaiming that Christ, not man, is king. Joel Saint will now address the fact that we do not have the option of a religious or a non-religious state. The question is, which religion?